Thank you for downloading the Engineering Commons podcast. In this episode, we talk with mechanical engineer Sam Feller about product design, power optimization, and improving one's drawing skills. We also learn about emergency stop light switches and a cup for dunking cookies and milk. How can you beat that? The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is Episode 70, Awkward Engineer, November 27th, 2014. So Adam, have you ever engineered any uh, fun projects before? Things, you know, not like planes or building or roads or any of those boring things, uh, stuff you wouldn't have imagined doing at school? Uh, well, I, I have an ongoing project that uh, has been mentioned a few times on the podcast to build a, a semi-automated brewing system. Oh, yeah, um, you have mentioned that before. How's that coming along? Uh, slowly. <laughs> um, <laughs> every time it gets to writing code, I kind of stop. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, by then you're probably drunk, right? <laughs> <laughs> I should be. <laughs> <laughs> there's a relevant XKCD where you just got to hit the bomber peak and you know it's where your blood alcohol level is just high enough where you can produce perfect code hmm, maybe I need to, to work on that alright well report back next week we want a full full progress report <laughs> I, I will uh, I'll see what I can do about that alright well yeah a lot of us don't uh, normally get that kind of opportunity I mean I I've just moved into my new house and still have quite a long honeydew list, so fun projects are kind of far down in my priorities right now. Well, do you have the but, home lab set up yet, or at least designated? Uh, I got the workbench in the garage, so that's good, and I got the office here where I'm recording. That's all set and ready. My Arduino's sitting next to me with a little motor wired up, as I'm trying to remember my, you know, my if-then statements. <laughs> But our guest today, uh, he engineers fun projects all the time. He is mechanical engineer Sam Feller of Awkward Engineer Creations, LLC. Sam is an inter- internet-famous entrepreneur who's bootstrapped his own company from only $500 to start with. Uh, he produces uh, a lot of cool, unique products like the panic button light switch, uh, blueprint placement, blueprint placemats, <laughs> and uh, the perfect engineered cookie dunking cup. Um, he's got another project soon to be released, but we'll let him tell you about that a little later on in the show. And in a past life, Sam has also written for the engineer blogs. So Sam, welcome to the engineering commons. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to have you on. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, standard softball warm-up question. We ask all our guests, what made you want to become an engineer? What, uh, got your interest in this field? Um, so, I uh, played with Legos a lot as a child, uh, I feel like that was a big influence. Um, both my parents were engineers. I guess my dad's an electrical engineer. My my mom was a software engineer. Oh, so you didn't stand a chance from the beginning. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I think I was kind of guided in that direction. And uh, I guess my, my high school shop teacher was pretty influential. Uh, and sort of I always liked making physical, tangible things, and that, that led me to become a mechanical engineer. Yeah, yeah, I had a similar start too. I had a, a really great shop teacher who who got me going, and the last minute I switched to electrical engineering and haven't looked back. So uh, you, you focused on mechanical engineering right from the get go. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think you could say that. Mm-hmm. Did you have a, a, a sub focus in school? Sorry. Uh, specifically in school, I focused on machine design. 
I did a robotics project for my, my senior project. Um, I went to WPI and they just started offering a robotics major the year I graduated. And if I'd been there maybe a year or two later, I may have been a, a robotics major instead. But I, I always like making stuff and mechanical engineering seemed like the way to go. So that's that's what I did. Hmm. Pretty cool. And, and I wanted to jump in. WPI stands for? Uh, Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Oh, cool. Kind of, kind of spelled like Worcestershire sauce with without the <laughs> without the sure on the end. It's, okay. Uh, yeah, small small engineering school in Worcester, Massachusetts. Oh, very good. And, and did uh, were you influenced to go there? Had had your family gone there, or did you just found out about it? Uh, they had a really good pamphlet. <laughs> <laughs> That, that that was the uh, the driver, I guess. They they also had a project based curriculum. Uh, that was a big selling point of the school. So um, I guess the three big projects that you have to do to graduate, uh, they used to call it. Um, so there's the the major qualifying project, which is something in in your your field of study. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's the interdisciplinary qualifying project, which is something. Uh, that's supposed to bridge kind of like sociology and engineering, like where where the arts meets like the sciences, and then uh, also they I think they've changed it to the humanities project. It used to be the sufficiency project to demonstrate that you are sufficient in the humanities, but they they felt like being sufficient wasn't quite what they were going for. <laughs> <laughs> and were these projects uh, supposed to take place at predetermined periods in your education? Um, I mean, there was some flexibility, like you're not going to do your major qualifying project, which is in your field until your senior year. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other projects, the, the humanities and the interdisciplinary, those are usually sophomore and junior years, but you can change that a little. Hmm. And, and so, uh, what was your major project? Uh, so my, my major qualifying project, uh, it was a roof inspection robot. And so I, I guess our, our project advisor had partnered with an insurance company uh, and got them to sort of sponsor the project. And they said, you know, we're, we're interested in having a robot go up on the roof because, you know, the inspectors can fall off. And just we just want a proof of concept vehicle that's capable of driving on the slopes of the roof. Mm-hmm. And it's got to be able to, you know, go over gables and the sharp peaks and and stuff like that. Uh, so we we came up with a robot. We uh, came up with this novel little articulating joint that would to go through the, the peaks and valleys of the roof. Um, we had a, a really cool control system. We had four motors uh, for each one of the wheels, and they were all on independent control loops. So it's kind of like we had this independent four-wheel drive going on. Mm-hmm. All-wheel drive, actually. It's pretty neat. Did it, did it end up working? Did it come together in the end? Uh, <laughs> so it's one of those things where we got to the fourth quarter of the school year, and we're like, oh, boy, we got a lot of work left to do. <laughs> That's too uh, soon. Yeah, and so uh, we, we graduated on time. Uh, we had a robot that could drive around on the roofs. It, it didn't have a sensor package. That was kind of beyond the, the scope of our project. So you couldn't really inspect anything while you were up there. You could you could look around with the video camera. Uh-huh. But 
but you could drive around and that was the goal we we had worked on some special tires that would get better traction on the roof and that's kind of part of what we did and i guess we were able to demonstrate something Hmm, wonderful that's more than i could say for my senior project (laughs) we had all the individual pieces working but somehow when we stuck them together it all fell apart (laughs) yeah yeah best of plans yes yes (sighs) so uh you know did your uh, desire to kind of strike off on your own and pursue fun little projects happen while you're at school or did that come later on uh i think it came more later on uh it was after i'd been in for a little while and the man had gotten guess, you down yeah you, <laughs> you, you could say that <laughs> yeah i i was working for i guess uh, a non-profit we did a lot of contract work for the government and uh, we did a lot of i did a us in aerospace so we did a lot of space flight stuff mm-hmm. and when you're putting in stuff into space there's like you, you really only get one shot um, and so there ends up being a lot of a lot of rigor and process and control um, around making sure that what you put into space stays there. And I I started to find the the process almost stifling. Like I, I've since learned since I, since I left, like stuff that I could get done in two or three days, you know, in the in the, I don't want to call it the real world, but out here. Yeah, it would take me. It would take me a month with all the process and steps we had to go life. through. Yeah, <laughs> yes, and so I, I, I think I was looking for a, a creative outlet, um, maybe a, a career change, uh, and so I it sort of became like a, a profitable hobby for me and a, a good way to work on some of these creative skills. Mm-hmm. And uh, I eventually left that that job at the nonprofit and took a job at a consulting firm where I'm, I'm still there. But uh, I've been able to keep Awkward Engineer running on the side ever since. Hmm. So how's the work-life balance then with full-time job, your your profitable hobby, and I'm assuming balancing some kind of family life too? Yeah, yeah. I I'm um, I'm married. I I've got sometimes I call her Mrs. Awkward Engineer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I uh, I don't know. I guess I I kind of killed the TV. I think my my roommate before I got married, I was living with my old roommate, and I, I think he went on this binge. Do you know the the show Top Shot? I think it's on Discovery Channel. Yeah. Oh yeah, it's a sniper show, right? Yeah, where they all have competitions like shooting guns at smaller and smaller targets while like hanging upside down from a swinging rope, and it just gets yeah yeah. yeah I think I've only seen like an episode or two, but yeah. I remember seeing it advertised a lot. So he went he went on this binge and he watched like two seasons of Top Shot in the span mm-hmm. of like like a day and a half. <laughs> and I've I, done that before I just, with shows. I'm not proud of it. And I realized of. like how easy it was to just get like sucked into a show and just like sit there. Mm-hmm. And I think I kind of decided this is not like I want to do things. Like I want to get stuff done. And so I, I guess killing the TV gave me a lot of time. Um, and then, I don't know, nights and weekends managed to do stuff. Uh, I guess the, the nature of consulting work is that there's a lot of stop and go. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you hit deadlines, pick up clients, new projects, projects start, projects end. Um, and so there's some downtime in between projects where you can kind of breathe a little more. And so in nights and weekends and downtime, I'd managed to, I guess, work on these little projects. Mm-hmm. 
So they, I guess the, the stuff I've developed for Awkward Engineer, it, it, I think of if I was developing it on a full-time schedule, it'd go faster. Uh, right now, like something that might take me six months to a year for Awkward Engineer, I'd, sometimes I estimate it would take like two to three months if it was a full-time effort. So, yeah. Is that your ultimate goal is to maybe one day make that self-sustaining or just kind of see where it goes for now? Uh I'm seeing where it goes. I I would like it to be self-sustaining. Uh, I think uh, a lot of agencies work sort of a hybrid model where they consult uh, to get money to develop products until they build out a product line. Um, I don't know if you know uh, the Field Notes notebooks. Have you ever seen oh, yeah. those? Oh, yeah. Yes. I have a, a stack of way too many sitting here in that closet. Yeah, so that was... Uh, that was uh, like an advertising and branding agency, and they'd started a couple little side businesses, and they realized that they enjoyed starting these side businesses more than they liked working with clients. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. they would they would they would hire themselves as clients, and kind of like a, they would they would treat it like a client project, and they'd like give it a budget and a schedule and a timeline, and they'd like they'd deliver something. And so Field Notes was one of those projects and each one of those projects that they do is one one less client that they need to work with and so it, it kind of has its appeal to approach things that way it's right. a pretty neat idea i don't think i've ever heard that being done before and so sam what was what was the first project you decided to try with the uh, awkward engineer um so the first project i i tried i excuse me that i that i tried to try um i actually abandoned completely I, I had mentioned I was working in the satellite industry, and we—I don't know if you've ever worked with SAP or Oracle or any of those database manufacturing systems. I'm not. Well, well, <laughs> consider consider yourselves lucky. <laughs> so I, I guess those systems—you know—they they came from a manufacturing background where you're churning out like hundreds or thousands of things, and we were making satellites and usually making one or two at a time. Like it, it was rare that we ever made three of something. And so I thought having software that was good for making one or two of something would be um, better than this manufacturing software. And so I, I kind of started poking into it and someone gave me some advice and they were like, is this like, if you had a million dollars, if you had $10 million, like, if money was no object, is this what you would be doing with your time, like working on this software? And I was like, uh, I don't think so. I'd rather make these goofy red buttons. I really want, <laughs> I, re I really want an e-stop from my bedroom. And I, I guess because I'm a mechanical engineer, you see these red buttons on the machines, and I just, I don't know, I was drawn to them for some reason. I wanted to be able to press it all the time without, like, you know throwing a wrench into the gears right and so they were like why don't you put this software thing away for a little while and and pursue what you're interested in and so the first product i actually brought to market was the panic button light switch kit uh, i thought i'd risk some money and try making a hundred of them i packaged them in plain brown cardboard boxes uh, and I put them up on my blog, and I think I sold six, uh, including two to my mom and dad. <laughs> and <laughs> I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, yeah." 
And I was like, all right, well, I, I guess I'll just walk up and down the street and start making some phone calls. And I submitted the, the product to ThinkGeek's product submission line. And uh, I guess, I don't know if you guys know ThinkGeek, but they're a large... No, I, I love ThinkGeek. Yeah, they're a large retailer online. And they they saw my stuff and they're like, we really like this. You know, can we get 500 and be ready and be, and be ready for another 700 more after that. Wow. wow. So were you on a shoestring budget still at this point? Um, yeah. You know, what was your setup like as you bought <laughs> these initial prototypes and were trying to sell them door to door? So I, I guess, I mean, it, it started with the $500 investment, um, managed to source switches, managed to source knobs. The knobs had to be customized for the switches because they didn't make them in the right size. So I had a drill press at home and I had a friend use his 3D printer and make me a jig. And I was I was going through like a hundred of these little things on my, my little benchtop drill press at home. Um, so it was it was pretty hacked together, I think. I was making making labels on my printer, um, sticking them on the boxes. I, I had a setup on the kitchen table and I think I I took over the kitchen for like eight hours while I, I packed <laughs> the things. And um, I guess after that, I was like, you know, maybe maybe I'm onto something. And I started talking to more retailers uh, and realized that a cardboard box was good for ThinkGeek and an internet-only company. But if I wanted to be in more stores, I'd need to learn about packaging. And I guess that's kind of the next the next step that I took was mm-hmm. getting into packaging but by then I had some money from the initial sale and I I could pay the I guess the upfront cost to do a, like a print run of custom packages very cool so yeah this really got you to see all aspects of the product design cycle yeah yeah and I think that was a, a thing that really appealed to me uh, because I wasn't just doing mechanical engineering anymore now I was doing like mechanical engineering I was doing design um, I was starting to think about like business cases, like what the retail price point should be. Mm-hmm. I was starting to like, I didn't know that retailers liked buying things in like a minimum case size. And then I was like, oh, now I need, now I need to get like a, a case to pack everything in. And I was like, oh man, now I need to add like a cardboard box to my bill of materials that all the other cardboard boxes are going to be packed. In. <laughs> when you uh, say minimum case size, what do you mean? Uh, so, when you retail, no retailers buy like one or two. They they buy twelve or ten <laughs> in a case. Or some places will do a, a, a half case. They'll they'll buy six. Um, but when you're doing like wholesale work, you're not doing onesies, twosies. You're selling boxes, like mm-hmm. packs. And and why do they have a preference for the particular size? Oh, it's just they're used to ordering it that way. Oh, okay. It's the way it's been done before. It's the way it shall always be. Yeah. <laughs> so for just a little bit of a description for our uh, our reader or listeners here who may not have visited your site before, what is the panic button light switch? Um, so the panic button light switch is to add adventure and excitement to turning on the lights <laughs> <laughs> every day. Uh, so for those of you who always like pressing red buttons and know that you're not really supposed to, uh, this gives you permission to do so. So it's a consumer-grade light switch, UL-rated. 
Uh, it replaces your regular flip up, flip down light switch with a big red button that you can give a good smack and it makes a wonderful kathunk. <laughs> Beautiful. So when you were testing the first prototypes, how afraid were you that you were going to burn your house down because um, of this wiring? <laughs> So the the very first one, I had shoehorned like an industrial e-stop into my wall box and it it didn't fit. (laughs) And I actually, I, so it was like, it's really supposed to be like attached to the wall box inside. And this was just attached to the cover plate. Mm -hmm. Um, And I invited a friend to, to press it. And it actually like they they because it's a big red button and they like they smacked it pretty good and it it shattered the cover plate <laughs> <laughs> and like little pieces sprinkled across the floor and so that's when I went out looking for like a consumer grade one that would actually attach to the wall box so it's actually so the uh, the electrical components are I guess they're OEM I, I have a source that makes you know consumer light switches for residential use. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I guess, what I use in my product. Was it a custom order or was it something that they already made? Uh, it was a partial custom order because they they sold it with their own knob. And so I, I had sourced and designed a knob elsewhere. And so I, I kind of worked with them to get uh, better pricing. I was like, if I don't need the knob, what's that? That's That's got to be like 10 cents a light switch, right? And cut, cut that off the price for me. <laughs> so. So did you have to cut your own molds for the uh, e-stop button, or is that something you bought also separately? Uh, that's sort of a build-to-order product. Uh, so they, they had molds available, but getting, uh, like I would specify colors. Uh, I started getting them engraved with my own stuff. So now you, you have a choice of the plain red button, or you can get a launch switch or an eject button. <laughs> Um, so they're, they're more custom, I guess, now than the initial, the initial version. Mm-hmm. So are you uh, assembling these all by hand with the button and the, the knob and the switch and the cover plate, or is, do you have someone else doing that? So the, the first 1,200 I did, <laughs> I did myself uh, with, with my girlfriend, who is now my wife. Uh, wow, that didn't so drive she, her away. I, I yes, I, I know. <laughs> she, she helped. Um, yeah, so I was, I was talking about uh, my assembly house. So it's um, within an hour drive of where I live in the Boston area. Uh, it's a home for the mentally disabled. And I guess it, it provides them with uh, like a living, working job that pays them a real wage. And so they're really good at repetitive tasks. And so they assemble and pack the boxes uh, for the panic button light switch kits. Hmm. Wow. Have you moved any of your other projects over there or did not any of any of them need that kind of assembly? Uh, so everything that I've sold through Awkward Engineer uh, has eventually gone through there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the the uh, the cookie dunk cups, um, they had to be packed into individual boxes. And so they, they folded the boxes, put the cups in the boxes, put stickers on the box. Uh, the placemats had to be uh, collated and then given an insert with some of the, I guess, the descriptive information for like the point of sale. Um, mm-hmm. And then it all got shrink wrapped. And so they they do that sort of thing. They're, they're really good at it. Cool, cool. And then I guess as, as I got more into the business, I, I eventually opened up um, 
I guess, a direct retail website, which is what awkwardengineer.com is now. And so I have a third-party logistics house that's, that's also, thankfully, within an hour drive of where I live. And they happen to already be working closely uh, with my assembly house. They're about 20 minutes from there. So it was, it was pretty easy. I could just be like, when's the next truck going from the assembly house to the shipping house? Can you make sure my stuff is on that truck too? <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, and then the uh, the logistics kind of handles the back end for me. So if you you get like an automated email when stuff ships and the tracking numbers, it's all it's all really nice. It's like the the modern e commerce website. It's fantastic. Nice, and that, that keeps you from cluttering up your kitchen and keeps your wife happy. I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, she was happy that there wasn't going to be any more kitchen table takeover. <laughs> so she was the real reason you went and found an assembly house and a logistics firm. It was a motivating factor. Yeah, yeah. You wanted to optimize a bit, but I could save 10 cents a unit if I just I, did it myself. I uh, know. You know, but waste four hours a night <laughs> boxing and shipping and emailing. It's, it's very true. It's very true. It was, I decided it was worth the money. Yeah, yeah. Uh, those things usually are. So how long uh, how long did you let the panic button light switch and stuff sell before you decided to do other projects, or did you just dive right in? Uh, I guess it was on the market for, I don't know, maybe a couple months before. I always have ideas kicking around, mm-hmm. and uh, I think I... Uh, I think I went on a little tangent trying to develop like a little educational robot. I think shortly after that, Kickstarter was starting to get really big. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I s- got to think of something cool that works with phones that'll kickstart. And like, I, it was very much like a me too thing. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, and I'll, I'll pull in a quarter million dollars. It'll be amazing. <laughs> and I, I, I started work on, uh, a little educational robot and I, I got into it and I kind of decided, you know, I don't know if this will sell well. I don't know if the price point is good there. So I, I think I, I, I was glad I did the project because I, I ended up learning a lot of Java and stuff for Android development and uh, got into some other, uh, I guess, embedded programming like C. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I eventually was like, you know, I don't see a future in this. And I, I nixed it and kind of yeah. moved moved on to the next idea in my chain, uh, which now I think ended up... you can use up... that knowledge to home automate your panic button light switch. Exactly. <laughs> Put a radio in there and you'll be all set. Yeah. No, it, it's really true that all the, all the skills that I've learned from project to project kind of tend to build on each other. Mm-hmm. And Sam, I wanted to ask, since we do have a number of... Uh, listeners who are outside of the United States, does your panic button uh, work outside the States or is it only really suited for... Uh, Ooh, you know, that was the thing I, I worked on really hard for a while. It's it's rated for U.S. voltages only, ah, okay. so, so I won't ship it outside the U.S. I, okay. uh, I tried to find an alternate source and it it just, it it, it didn't make business sense. I just, mm-hmm. I wanted to really badly. I just couldn't do it. And okay. you got to do CE and everything. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of hard for a, a bootstrapped, essentially one-man band operation to do, I'm, I'm imagining. Yeah, it, it was tough. Okay. Yeah. Sam, so, I have to ask, what's in the mystery box? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, I have to buy one now. 
<laughs> so after you get your uh you know your the idea in your head whether it's for the light switch or a, a cookie dunking cup how do you how do you set design specs you know because that's not exactly something you you do a drill problem in school you know it's not right oh, you have a, a beam supporting a load and this right. is how you size them both uh you know what it what makes a cookie dunking cup a good cookie dunking cup you know i i think that's one of the big skills that school doesn't prepare you for um to say no one's making the rules like we're like it's up to you you get to decide what you do today and the way we're going to grade you is by how well it sells Mm -hmm. um and i think school doesn't necessarily prepare you for that that self-directed like it's up to you like it's your turn to decide. <laughs> Just pick anything and go right. with it. And Refine so, fine as needed. I guess the the cookie dunk cup kind of. I I was in a drawing class and they said draw a vessel, and so I, I thought about vessels and things that held water, and then somehow the cookie dunk idea bounced into my head, <laughs> and I was like, I I think I have to make this, and. Uh, I guess I, I kind of thought about like what drove me nuts about not being able to reach the bottom of a tall glass of milk like once you drank a bunch of it to dunk mm-hmm. a cookie and kind of thought about what the ideal shape would be, like how it would funnel milk to the bottom. And so I, I guess I, I started with some sketches. Um, I used my 3D printer and I, I printed up some samples and I showed them around to some people. I tried dunking some cookies, and then it kind of iterated and evolved from there. And I, I guess some of the specs I kind of made up along the way, uh, kind of figured from like user feedback. So like eight ounces, I thought was a standard serving size of milk, and it turned out that once the glass got big enough to hold eight ounces, it didn't look too small anymore. And so, <laughs> so. Some of those requirements kind of evolved as the project moved mm-hmm. on. Kind of had this romantic idea that you were in front of a big whiteboard full of equations, and at the end <laughs> there's like a, a big box, you know, around uh, the answer. That's how you make the cup. That's <laughs> that's how you dunk a cookie. <laughs> like like a like an optimized surface, like <laughs> yeah. to to envelope the volume. Yes, yes. You know, I want some uh, you know finite element analysis uh, in this cup to make sure it's up to spec. Uh, that'd be fantastic. You know, <laughs> you know, sometimes that's a that's a thing I, I think about every now and then is where is the line between design and engineering? And mm-hmm. I, I think it becomes really hardcore engineering. I, I think for me the line is when math starts becoming involved. <laughs> how, how much math? Like back of the envelope or when you try to take it to that next level? Uh, if it's at least algebra, then I, I think it's starting to become engineering. Okay. Very cool. So uh, what, what's your home lab setup look like at the moment? We've established we have at least a drill press, a 3D printer, and a kitchen table. <laughs> um, so um, I, I, uh, got a, I bought a condo recently. Uh, so I, I, have, I have more space now, which is kind of nice. I guess I've got down in the basement is things that make messes. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the 3d printer and the drill press are down there along yeah. with a workbench and just general toolbox full of, I guess, hand tools and a couple power tools. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then upstairs, I have a nice drafting desk that I, I really, I picked it up on Craigslist and thought it was awesome. It was some like drafting desk from the 1960s. And I was like, it's great. Oh, that's kind of cool, actually. <laughs> so that's, I guess, those are my, my two workspaces. And then, I don't know, I'll, I'll work on the couch on my laptop too, so. Cool. So truly a, a garage, uh, you know, start in the garage type business. Yeah, very much so. Now, Sammy, you had mentioned the uh, going to a drawing class, and I, w- I was curious. You had on your uh, on your homepage or your own blog page, I guess, samfeller.com, you've got some doodles there that are ver- some very nice little drawings. Was that something you did in this drawing class, or did you have this ability before you went to this drawing class? Uh, that was ability that was certainly refined by the drawing class. I definitely believe that drawing is a skill that can be learned like like reading and writing. Uh, it's just that schools don't necessarily teach it like they teach reading and writing. Mm-hmm. And and so I could I could make like chicken scratch sketches and it, I was actually and so in my in my government job, uh, I'd worked with a bunch of CAD draftsmen who were like old school guys who'd started working at a you know, working at the bench. Right. And so some of them could draw freehand incredibly well. And so I'd make like this little chicken scratch thing and then they'd like turn out a, a Picasso and I'd just be like, oh my God, all right, this is, this is embarrassing. So I, I decided to take just a basic drawing class and I really enjoyed it and I, I got better and it's the sort of thing like wherever you are, you can always sketch, you can always draw. Uh, boring meetings is a fun time for, for me to work on my drawing skills. Right. Uh, and then at some point, I uh, I went from like little community college drawing classes, and there's the uh, in the Boston area. There's the the masks. It's called Mass Art. Uh, so it's the the Mass. I think Mass College of Art and Design. I'm I'm gonna embarrass myself if anyone from the school <laughs> is listening. They're gonna be mad. And I, every everyone calls it Mass Art. Okay. Um, and I took a couple classes in the industrial design department there. And uh, I guess one of the big things for me from class was that it encouraged me to spend anywhere from like, I don't know, eight to 12 hours a week working on drawing and just spending 12 hours a week, you got better at it. And I, I definitely saw like line quality improved, control of perspective improved um, and kind of developed. And so there, I'm definitely jealous of like industrial designers who can make these just beautiful works of art and look at my stuff. So I, I wanted to be able to convey ideas that I had in a better way than I had before. And so I feel like the drawing class helped me do that. Mm-hmm. And your, um, your feeling about presenting an idea or fleshing out an idea on uh, paper as opposed to a lot of people these days sit down and do it on a CAD system. We got three oh. modeling and let's, you know, let's, uh, let's pound it out and see what it is so we can spin it around and put lights on it and all that kind of stuff. So w- when my drawing started getting better, I, I would actually draw what I was going to model first, like before I got into CAD modeling mm-hmm. and I could draw an assembly in like five or 10 minutes. And then when I got to the CAD model, I already knew what I was going to do. And it would make the CAD modeling go that much faster. 
So like I wasn't, I wasn't using CAD. I would use the paper as like an exploratory and a thinking tool. And CAD helped me resolve like the details of the implementation. Mm -hmm. But, but I wasn't going through like a 10 or 20 feature CAD model realizing like, oh, this, this isn't anything close to what I wanted and being like an hour into it mm-hmm. and, and blowing it up anymore. I was thinking through all those problems on paper first and I, I found being able to draw better uh, jumped my CAD skills dramatically. Terrific. Terrific. Now, have you had this discussion with other people? Do I think a lot of people who know how to do CAD are reluctant to let go of it. It's so much fun to to put things up there on the screen and, and uh, you know, spin the, them around. It, that's, I think some people find it hard to let go of it and say, oh, I'm going to go back to a piece of paper. I uh, I don't know. I think I've met people who, who don't draw well uh, and don't think they can because they've never been taught, mm-hmm. who prefer to work in CAD. And I, I, I guess the, one of the great allures is that you can always like – like you can always do control Z, which you can't really do on a piece of paper. Um, <laughs> it's called an eraser. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, okay. Um, I, I draw in pen. Oh, so. Okay, so you can't control Y <laughs> on a page piece yeah. of paper when you realize you, you right. did need that thing. <laughs> right, but so I, I don't think I've met people. I, I think I'm getting tangled up into my answer here. So I, I've met people who I've suggested that they work on their drawing to get better at CAD, who stubbornly stick to CAD. Mm-hmm. And then I've also heard, I've heard uh, older engineers at work say, the best I, engineers I know are the ones who draw the best. And so I, I don't know. Yeah, I think there's, a, you know, beyond just a physical representation, I think the ability to lay out a scenario on paper to show even a, you know, flow chart type thing is very helpful in a lot of engineering meetings to get your idea about, you know, we're going to start here and go to there. Um, and, uh, so if, if you're able to do that and now start throwing in a few, you know, so the next step up from there is you can throw in a, a, a side view. And then if you can show an isometric view that looks somewhat realistic. And then once you get to the point where you're showing, you know, um, views that actually look like the product, or look like people or look, you know, whatever you need in the middle of the drawing, then that always helps in conveying the idea as you're, as you're fleshing it out in real time. Yeah. So you have like a big, uh, sketchbook you carry around and it's got like a light switch in there and a cookie dunking cup. And- <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, I usually keep a small sketchbook in my pocket that I use for notes mm-hmm. too. One of those field notes. Uh, uh, it's I'm I'm a, a moleskin guy. Oh, okay. Moleskin. I, I switched over yeah. field notes, bought a whole bunch, so I guess I got to use those up before yeah. I switch again. Okay, um, but I really like drawing on printer paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I like drawing on a, a stack of printer paper. Like it, if you draw on a stack of paper, it feels a little softer. Like you don't you don't end up making like really hard lines. It. it 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 feels different. If you if you try it, you'll say. Yeah, I like using printer paper just to scratch, you know, scratch paper yeah. to work for calculations and 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 so I end up with like Manila folders full of like. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, one of its other benefits printers, too is printer paper bad. sketches. You never feel bad throwing it away because it's printer paper. Yeah. Oh, it's dirt yeah. cheap. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas if I'm writing in like my big notebook, you know, my nice engineering one, I always feel like oh, I can't waste this page. Yeah. It's got to be for like some kind of <laughs> massive breakthrough. <laughs> Yeah. And I've gotten yeah. a little better at that, but scratch paper all the way for me, legal pads, 
printer paper, you name it. If I can crumble it up and throw it away, all the better. Yep. <sighs> so, uh, you know, we're quite a ways into the podcast here. Our listeners, I'm assuming, are enthralled at the push-button light switch and perfectly dumping their dunking their cookies, which, by the way, you discriminate against EL fudge. You're going, you're going against for those sandwich <laughs> <Sorry>. cookies. <laughs> uh, um, what, what's your latest project? What are you working on? Uh, so the latest is the clock. It's the, the AWK105 analog voltmeter clock. Okay, and what, what is its basic premise? Um, so I really was excited about the idea of doing a clock because I thought it was a, a cool product uh, that I hadn't hadn't done before. I, I knew it would be something that was giftable and also wanted to make it nerdy so it would fit in with the awkward engineer stuff. Uh, so I, I had an old analog voltmeter and I loved watching the needle kind of move back and forth on the voltmeter as I'd check, check things with it. Um, and so I thought, wouldn't it be cool if there was a, a meter that told hours and a meter that told minutes? And I wanted to give it like a really industrial retro look in a sheet metal case. And uh, I guess that's that's sort of where the idea originated. I, I googled voltmeter clock and I, I saw that people were selling kits. And I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> uh, but I, I decided they were selling... Uh, they were selling almost bare boards that you had to repackage yourself. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, I want to bring my my own sense of design and style to this product. Oh, okay. So and you, I wanna, you had to actually wanna, build a case around these boards. It wasn't like modify your existing voltmeter. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so it was sort of uh, like I want this to be like a finished uh, consumer-grade product that is not necessarily aimed – at the hobby, like the hobby set, but but something that you could give as like a gift to a, a parent. Yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. And I, I've seen your proof of scales. I've been getting your email updates, and it looks fantastic so far. I'm excited to yeah. open mine. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm getting so I've I've now cleared all my technical milestones. Mm-hmm. So I I have a clock. I've got a custom circuit board for it. Um, it's been running off a battery for. I don't know, probably close to two months now, and it's still ticking away. Uh, and I, I guess I'm going through uh, kind of some final checks before doing like a, a, a crowdfunding campaign. I I want to make sure like quantities are appropriate, final costs are appropriate, that sort of thing. Make sure I didn't I didn't miss like miss something important mm-hmm. that's going to cost like an extra twenty dollars. Probably smart. Yeah, you don't want that to bite you in the butt later on. Yeah. Um, so you think it'll be ready in time for the holidays? So the campaign will be ready in time for the holidays. The product won't ship till afterwards. Okay. Very cool. So you can, you, you can give an IOU or a gift card. Say it's coming. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So does the clock have any uh, other features besides just telling time? Did you add in a date and you know uh, other options like that, alarms, feature creep sort of stuff? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I uh, I had originally prototyped with an Arduino compatible little thing called a DigiSpark, and it had six pins on it. I think it, it didn't have much. It had enough to drive the needles for the meters, and it had enough for inputs. Um, but I knew I was going to move to custom boards, and I knew like adding an alarm clock was something that I might want to do. Um, 
And so, uh, I guess adding like an LED indicator uh, for an alarm and adding an extra switch, uh, it ends up adding significantly to the cost and the LED absolutely blows the power budget. Mm -hmm. Um, This isn't just one of those little tiny three millimeter ones, right? It's something bright that you would see. Yeah, yeah, even even the little ones, uh, they just when they're on all the time, it just it 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 will eventually drain. It won't be an appropriate amount of time for a clock battery to yeah, last. Yeah, yeah, you can't be changing As, batteries every two weeks. Yeah, yeah. So what I ended up doing was I I knew I was going to move to custom circuit boards, and I left places on the circuit boards to be able to add stuff later mm-hmm. on. So if an individual wants to like swap out the battery and attach like a wall, a wall wart with a little USB supply. Like it's definitely going to be possible. Oh yeah. Unless you're going completely crazy on your PCB layout, adding little extra features like that isn't going to up your cost. Oh no, not at all. So there, there are a lot of unpopulated components on there. I'd actually, I'd actually be really excited to talk about some of the things I did on the circuit board to kind of make that happen. I when I saw the clock, I saw the analog dials, and I was very curious how you were able to hit the power requirements, given that you have to drive coils. Uh, so each coil is fifty microamps. Uh, so it's a very small ammeter. It's not actually a voltmeter anymore. Um, and so it, I guess fifty amps or fifty microamps per coil, uh, and then you figure they're they're pointing to an average of six o'clock. So that's that's 25 microamps uh, each. So you got, I guess, 50 microamps average from the meters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then on the microchip itself, it's uh, an ATtiny84. I'm, I believe I'm going to be embarrassed that the 85. <laughs> this is uh, all in your blog too, by the way, for anyone yeah. who wants to <laughs> see all the nitty gritty yes. details, and we'll link to that, you know, in the show notes. So the the 85, I think, has uh, eight pins in the 84. I think they added another output register uh, to the chip, so it's got more output. It's got more uh, general purpose input outputs available. Mm-hmm. Uh, so on the chip to get, I guess, into this really um, stingy, stingy, stingy power mode. I guess you just you turn everything off that you can. Um, so the the chip is running on an external crystal. Uh, the the crystal is a, it's a clock crystal, so it's thirty two kilohertz. So it, when you get it out of the box, it's running I think at eight megahertz is the normal clock speed. So I've dropped the clock from eight megahertz to thirty two kilohertz, which saves power. Oh, that'll save quite a bit of power. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the voltage is turned down, so it, it'll it'll run over a pretty wide voltage range. Um, I guess on my board, it's I've got it running at two volts, uh, so that's another way to save power. Uh, the The clock itself, um, you can turn off the CPU and let peripherals drive the needles, uh, so it spends most of its time in sleep mode. Uh, so it's asleep, but the the clock is still running in the background with the CPU off. And there are output compare registers that generate the PWM signals that that drive the the meters. So that's that's the lowest power draw. Um, 
And then I, I turn as much else off as I can. Uh, I turn the serial port off. Um, I, I have to, the, to pull the knobs, which it was probably, it, it was a thing I tried really hard to work around. Um, so there, there are two knobs on the clock for adjusting it. Uh, one, one knob sets the mode that you're in. So you're either in normal time display mode. Uh, it's got a, a funky, like look cool mode where it makes the needles twitch while it's telling time. And then because there are analog meters, you need to be able to calibrate them. They're not, they're not quite perfect from the factory. So it has a calibration mode as well. Um, and then the, the other knob is for adjusting the time or adjusting the calibration. So th that knob could be a quadrature encoder. So that will generate interrupts and it'll wake, it'll wake the chip up from its sleep cycle and then it'll service the interrupt and go back to sleep and continue saving power. Um, the mode knob is a potentiometer and that, that has to be pulled. And I guess because because it's being pulled, it had to be careful about what I was doing to check it. Um, so it is, uh, it's not tied to the, the positive rail. Uh, it's actually, uh, powered, uh, the, the voltage divider on the potentiometer is actually powered from one of the output pins on the chip. So in between poles, it'll turn the potentiometer off so it's not not drawing power. Oh, that's kind of clever. Yeah, I guess you don't need a lot of current to flow through that resistor. Yeah, and then the other thing that I do is that I actually um, I turn the analog to digital converter off. I guess it the final line in the loop is go back to sleep, and then it kind of it kind of stalls in that sleep mode until it gets either an interrupt or well yeah until it gets an interrupt so that the interrupt will either come from the the encoder knob uh, or it'll come from one of the timers internally on the chip so after like half a second or a second goes by whatever whatever the polling frequency is it'll wake it up uh, it'll turn the analog to digital converter on it'll turn on power. Um, to the potentiometer knob, then it'll it'll read it, then it'll turn the analog to digital converter back off, turn the potentiometer knob back off, and then it goes back to sleep. Hmm. So what are your interrupts? It's uh, you you said the encoder, but for kind of your cyclic tasks, is it a set one second interrupt or? Um, say that again. Uh, what are your uh, wake up events? Uh, so you said the encoder, but do you have a one second interrupt? Yeah, so the the encoder knob, and then I guess the the polling frequency. So it, I think it's running at one second right now. It might be a little faster. It might be every half second, and so that's how often it wakes up, uh, checks the the poll, the polling knob, the potentiometer, and also adjusts the time. So are you using an onboard RTC, or are you simply handling it with your software control loop? Uh, so I'm keeping track of time internally, uh, and I'm running off a crystal oscillator, an external oscillator. Cool. And you're getting pretty good drift values. I think so. I'll I'll be honest that I haven't I haven't precisely measured it. I've just kind of been watching the clock over the last month or two. That's probably good enough for an application like this. Yeah. Yeah. So how how'd you go about uh, doing all the electronic design? Are you self-taught or did you pick some of it up at school working in robotics or have you brought in outside help for some of this? 
Um, so I guess I, uh, some of the electronics I'd learned at school, like I, I took volts for dolts. Uh, <laughs> some I like that. I'm going to steal that. Yeah. Um, some I I mean I'd done a fair bit of programming. Uh, I think I I'd done Arduino level stuff, uh, which is I I mean Arduino I the the C language that Arduino works with it it simplifies things and it hides a lot of things from me, which is which is great from a beginner. But like all this all this stuff like doing the power optimization. Oh yeah, um, yeah. That's that's low level. Yeah, like I was setting individual registers, and so I think it was a mixture of reading stuff on the internet, um, talking to some of the electrical engineers from my day job, kind of picking their brain, uh, and I think more internet, and some somehow somehow I got there and spending a good chunk of time with the. Uh, with the, I, I'm thinking it's not the application notes. It's the data sheet. Yeah, it's like the the device data sheet for the the chip, mm-hmm. and you call it a oh, data yeah, sheet. Sure but it's, it's it's a it's a book. Oh like yeah, it, for a microcontroller, it can get quite thick. Yeah, yeah, and it, it, you read it 700 times, and 701st time you found something else. You're like oh, that's what I should have been doing. Yeah. So it, I mean, it it wasn't like overnight. Like it, it took a while to learn all this stuff, but mm, how long has it been know. in development for? Um, I guess so. There's the development time I've spent, and there's the development time that has elapsed. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think I might have three or four months into it, but it's probably spaced out over the last eight or nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just got to work on it when you can. Yeah. So is is it a, a a complex circuit in there, or is it really just like the microcontroller and a clock, or do you have some kind of analog stuff there to, to uh, convert the PWM to a voltage? There's there's some other current. stuff. There's some other stuff in there. Um, I have a, a power block uh, with the little boost circuit that takes the the battery and what takes kind a of battery one. Are you using a one and a half volt double A? So that'll that'll okay. That'll droop down to a volt over its life. So I, I, I've got a little boost circuit to get two volts for the microchip. Um, there's some debout circuitry for the encoder knob. Um, I guess I, I wanted to future-proof the thing and be able to add uh, like an alarm clock and like an LED and a speaker, and then you'd need a switch to turn the alarm clock on and off. And then I started realizing that I was running out of pins on my microchip. <laughs> um, so uh, what I ended up doing uh, is the the potentiometer knob, like that sets the mode. I'm really I'm just reading a voltage, and so I came up with what I thought was a, a clever resistor divider network, where I, I wanted to be able to. Uh, I wanted to be able to unpopulate some of the components that were associated with like the alarm clock features. So I, the board had to work without them. Um, but if I wanted to include that, I needed to make sure that everything was just on one, one voltage. Like I was just reading it all on one pin cause I didn't have any left. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I came up with a, a little transistor network and I guess it sets this voltage divider. So if the alarm switch is one way, 
uh, the potentiometer will go from zero to half of the, the full rail. And if you flip the switch the other way, the transistors will, will flip and then the voltage divider will be arranged so the potentiometer goes from uh, halfway all the way up to the the positive voltage rail. And so you could get one voltage and, and read one thing. And then if you unpopulated the, the transistors, if they weren't there, uh, you could still get the voltage divider to, to work. And so I, I thought that was a, a clever little thing that I ended up having to throw into this this chip. So there's there's some other analog stuff on the board, but there's not too much more than that. Yeah, well, that's still pretty clever. Um, I'm trying to picture it in my head, and now, now I'm going to be penciling it out tomorrow at work during some <laughs> meetings. <laughs> there's a diagram on the website. It's on the blog. Oh, I'm not going to cheat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I might have missed that one. I'll see if I can do it clever. It'll be like, ha, this uses less power. <laughs> okay. Right. Now I'll forward it to you and only charge you a small licensing fee. Sure. So, so Sam, I, I look at the uh, uh, the picture on your your website, and and I note that you've got uh, you know one one meter says hours and one says minutes, which is not surprising. And you might you might have been able to find somebody to provide that custom, uh, but I note that it has a little logo there for awkward engineers. So this is definitely a custom you know label. And so I'm just I'm just wondering uh, in all these products as you go out and you try to decide on which you know, which items to buy and where to source them. And so what have you learned about sourcing products uh, from having having gone, you know, to a re- uh, created retail products yourself? So I definitely prefer to source uh, as close to home as possible. Like this is, I mean, this is what I call my profitable hobby. Mm-hmm. And so if I can get in the car and drive 20 minutes and see you, and work out a manufacturing issue like that's just less headaches so like my my assembly house is an hour away and so that's close enough so if they have a problem or if i need to train them or teach them something like i can do that without headaches um so i i try and work as close to home as possible um with the the analog meters, I had looked into it. There's a place in Connecticut that makes them, and they must be making them for the military, like where they have no choice but to source from the U.S. Um, but they were twenty seven dollar meters. Wow! And I was just like, I can't, I can't put this in a consumer product and multiply by like my markup and then the retailer markup. Like it just can't do that and so that i i found the source in china and like there's just there's no way to compete against it 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 had to be done mm-hmm. but you, you brought up the logos and how the the scales on the meter are custom and that's actually a thing that i i'm thinking about for the kickstarter campaign so i can what you see in those pictures on the website i cut out of printer paper like i i printed those myself on nice cardstock and kind of took the meter apart and put those in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the sort of thing where if I wanted to crowdfund for like, I think up to about 50 units, like just if I wanted to do a really small batch like that, I would still probably cut those out by hand um, and, and put those in by hand. Uh, beyond that, I'd look into getting the factory to custom custom make those for me. And so really they're just, they're changing the scale 
which is just one one piece in their assembly, but it doesn't change the assembly procedure. It doesn't change any of the components really. Mm-hmm. And so it, it's not a, a big deal to customize that. You just want to be at a point where the, the setup charge to do that doesn't like it's, it's spread out over enough units. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So is that then the, uh, the biggest issue you face so far and not just this project, but all your projects kind of ramping up to production and making sure yeah. the costs that come up here and there don't, don't kill you all of a sudden. Yeah, figuring out, uh, figuring out where like I guess volume breaks are going to be, and kind of having a guess of how confident you are in a, the smallest number you're going to sell, like how much risk you're willing to take on. So mm-hmm. like the the placemats were an out of pocket thing. I didn't crowdfund those. I just I I was confident that they would do pretty well, and so that was I think the initial run I think was a thousand pieces. And so that that was kind of at the point around the thousand pieces where like the price was starting to get low enough per unit that I thought it would sell at a reasonable price. Um, I was comfortable with the out of pocket risk. I, I found I, I found that I guess a good niche. Um, one of the things with the clock and one of the things I've kind of learned like since the cookie dunk cup, like the the startup costs on an injection molded product are just horrible like <laughs> like there's no way around it you got to cut steel for molds mm-hmm. and yeah, you gotta be extra sure your cad dimensions yeah yeah and you and you really only get you, you really only get one one shot at it like you can kind of tweak a mold and modify it after it's made but mm-hmm. but you get one chance um and with the clock like designing in sheet metal the setup charges are much lower like setup costs instead of being instead of being in the thousands of dollars like for an injection molded part they'll be in the hundreds of dollars and so i really like the look and feel like it might be more expensive per per unit but i think that's part i think it's worth it for what i'm going for and because the setup costs are so much lower it's much more attractive design choice for me yeah so really, when you, you start your own engineering firm, the, the hardest stuff isn't the engineering at all. <laughs> and and so uh, along those lines, Sam, when you were uh, picking the uh, – you were doing the, the dunk cup, uh, what did you go through in trying to determine which uh, plastic to use to – how you know who to, who to go with molding and which plastic to use? And now because it was contacting food, I'm sure you had some, some other regulations oh, you had to worry about. Yeah. So the, the FDA has a category – that they call uh, substances generally recognized as safe. And so I, I had done incredible amounts of reading on it. Um, I, so the best thing to do is eventually to call a plastic supplier. You don't, you don't call the injection molder. The injection molder is good at, at molding things. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not there to tell you about chemistry. Uh, but some of, the, some of the big names, uh, like the people who make... Uh, Nalgene bottles now, they, they switched to something called Triton, which after all the, the BPA scare, like this Triton co-polyester material, it's been tested out the wazoo. And so they'll, they'll tell you which plastics that they make are specifically for food grade products. And then there's another category for infant grade uh, to make stuff for, for babies, mm-hmm. like, like, like bottles and things. Um, so it's definitely like a black hole 
and uh, <laughs> I was I was I was scared scared to wander into it. A, b- a black hole in regards to your time or your the amount of knowledge you needed to acquire. Um. So so the the final. I guess the final approach I took after spending all this time reading about it was to ask an expert. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and, and trust the expert's opinion. Right. Because the, the plastic suppliers, it's what they do all day. Right. Yeah. And at some point you just have to take that leap of faith. Yeah. Yeah. And so did the, did the choice of plastics influence at all the, the, you know, the colors you could produce in or the appearance that you wanted or. or- yeah. So the I guess the the full story of the Cookie Dunk Cup is that the the Kickstarter failed. I I had to raise a lot of money for the crowdfunding campaign because I didn't want to pay for mold costs out of pocket. Uh, but it ended up getting picked up. Uh, I licensed it by a guy who had another Cookie Dunking product, and for some reason he wanted another. Uh, and so I wanted <laughs> I I really wanted uh, a clear cup so that you could see the milk, and I wanted it. I wanted it like crystal clear and it kind of drives you to a a direction with mold polish uh, and materials. Uh, So I had picked out, I think it's, this was a while ago. I think it was a a PETG. It's the the same family as the Triton, but it wasn't a brand name like Triton. Mm -hmm. Um, And that, that gives you like this beautiful crystal clear stuff. Um, I think what the the cookie dunk cup in in production is a, a food geared polypropylene, which so it's uh, when you make it clear, it's a lot cloudier. Mm-hmm. It's it's like what uh, uh, the Tupperware containers, like the the disposable Tupperwares. Right. Uh, those are those are usually polypropylenes. They're they're a little cloudier, and so he initially started with a dark, like a dark tint. Mm-hmm. Um, and he eventually moved to a clear color so you could see the milk through the cup, but it, it ended up being, um, I don't want to say hazy, but it was definitely, uh, more translucent than transparent, which was, which was not my, wasn't my original vision for the product, but it, it definitely brought the cost of it down. But I mean, that was part of the licensing is I, I lost some of the control of it, but he also financed it. So, right. Right. Well, you know, the engineering is the art of compromise. Yes. So, Sam, we're uh, kind of winding down here on our on our hour. Um, do you have any kind of advice for anyone who wants to start doing this sort of stuff on their own? Um, yeah, I guess the best thing to do is to start. Like I, I, you, there's no rules. There's no one. No one telling you what to do. It's it's up to you to do something. So. You might as well dive in and go take a drawing class. And I there's yeah. there's there's a I I mean I wrote about it for engineer blogs a couple times. There's just like this whole whole world of skills that are out there that they don't necessarily teach you in engineering school, but I think are really useful. Like I I think I think drawing is a good thing to learn. I think learning about sales is good. Um, there's I don't know, and I maybe. Maybe the the last thing that I'd like to add besides just start is that every project I've worked on, I've learned something. And even if the product didn't go to market, the thing I learned always came in useful later. Sometimes it was two or three years before I had to use that skill again. But having learned it once gave me a huge leg up the next time around. Yeah, it's always easier to relearn it. 
Yeah. Right. And uh, so we've we've mentioned the website, but I guess, again, we can say that uh, if people are interested in finding your products, is that the place they should go? Yeah, awkwardengineer.com. And if they want to get in touch with you personally, do you recommend Twitter, Facebook, email? Uh, so questions at awkwardengineer.com is usually a good way to reach me. Uh, it gets forwarded to my inbox, so... I'll probably respond within 24 hours. And I'm on Twitter. I will respond. It's not my number one choice for communication, but I'll use it. Okay, cool. Yeah, we can throw all that stuff into the show notes for anybody who wants to place an order or ask you more questions about what you've been doing. Pick your brain about various ways to get their power drawdown. Yeah. (laughs) All right, well, thank you for coming on, Sam. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Hopefully you had a good time. Yeah. Enjoyed it very much. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Good to talk to you, Sam. And now, now I'm mentally calculating how many voltmeter clocks I need in my life. <laughs> I think at least two. <laughs> Home and office. Thanks, Sam. Yep. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.